Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Well, good morning. So good to see you guys. And let me say good morning to all of you joining us online. As we continue in our series uh, in the book of Hebrews, uh, we are in chapter 7. If you have a Bible, if you want to go ahead and open to chapter 7, we're in the last part of chapter 7 today. As you're opening to chapter 7, a few things before we get into our text. Uh, first of all, um, I want to highlight a group that is with us. Uh, we are excited to have the Olivet Nazarene women's soccer team joining us uh, for a couple of weeks. So if you're here in the auditorium, I know part of the team I think is here and part of the team might be serving. Could you stand up? I know this might be embarrassing, but could you stand up, please? Come on, church. Come on. We are very excited to have you with us. I pray that our church serves and ministers to you well, that the extension of grace is from our church to you guys while you're here. They'll be here for a couple weeks. They are serving in our area. They are staying here on campus. Uh, we are trying to serve them as they serve us, and they are also training for their upcoming season. So be in prayer for their season. Uh, that is a great season for them. We are praying for that for you guys. And then uh, something else uh, that I want to share. Uh, a couple weeks ago, you know, our team got back from Costa Rica. We have been putting that highlight video together. Well, it is ready, so check out the screens.
is so hard to put uh, into a two to three minute video all the things that God has done on the trip and on the trips that we've been in and on and what he's doing in the future of our relationship with our sister church there in Nicoya. Um, we're really excited where God is leading us uh, in that and we're going to share more about that at the end of this month. We have a very special weekend where we're going to pause Hebrews for just a, a Sunday and we're going to have a Costa Rica weekend. We're going to share more information about next year and some exciting things about that and uh, we're going to have a special guest with us. So I really would encourage you August 28th that Sunday if you can make plans to be here, uh, try to be here. It'd be a really great Sunday to hear more about Costa Rica. All right, let me get into our text here, Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, just a, a quick recap so that we're all kind of understanding again. Our author uh, has been repeatedly showing us uh, and showing to his readers the superiority of Jesus. We've entitled this series, Jesus is Greater. In this section, we've called Faith and Certainty. Um, but this is all about Jesus is greater. He's superior to all things and all people. There is no one and nothing greater. And that's the theme of Hebrews. And so over the last couple of weeks, the comparison of Jesus being greater has been within the priesthood. And that may seem strange to us, but to his audience, that was everything. That was everything they knew about a relationship with God the Father. And so as we look last week in chapter 7, verses 11 through 22, and I mentioned this last week as well, that we're going to continue, and the, thought, the theme kind of last week is going to continue into our text today, wrapping up chapter 7. And we're going to see this compare and contrast between Jesus, who is a better hope, a new hope, a better hope, and the priesthood that came through uh, the law in the Old Testament. And so he's going to drive home, again, this, that Jesus is greater that that is to be put aside and that Jesus has come and he is better. He is a priest that is everlasting and perfect, which we will see within our text. So chapter 7, verses 22 through 28. I'm going to start with the last verse we finished, we had last week through the end of the chapter. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Verse 24, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Verse 27, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So last week in verse 22, just... Uh, Again, to kind of get us moving into this text, that last verse uh, that we looked at last week talks about this guarantee, that Jesus is the guarantor. A guarantee, as we said, is a legal term that, means, that, that really means whatever the promise might be, it will be fulfilled based on what? Based on the dependability of the guarantor. You know guarantees, you, you purchase things that have guarantees, and you know that that guarantee is only as good as the person who is guaranteeing it, the guarantor. And so in this case, the author says that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. 
which this means to us. He is the one who signs with his own lifeblood, which we're going to celebrate in communion at the end of our time together, with his own lifeblood, that the guarantee that all the promises of God, all the promises of God in the gospel will come through in Jesus. And we said, can you ask for more assurance than this? And, and I said plainly, and I think you know this, no, you cannot. We have a new hope, a better hope because of Jesus. And so in this last section, as we move into verses 23 to 28, we point out the aspect of Jesus' priesthood that comes with this better hope. They're superior. They're superior to all the others. This will give us a good overall the understanding of this last section of chapter 7. Then I'm going to come back to two words. So here's the first aspect, permanence. Permanence. And you may have picked up on this when we read through the text. I'm not showing you anything that isn't easier or easy to pick up on. But here's the first aspect, permanence. And we see this in verses 23 to 25. Now in verse 21, in our last, right before this section, we see that God the Father makes an oath to his Son. That Jesus is a priest forever. I'll read it to you. Verse 21. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So we read that the father makes an oath that he is a priest forever. Confirming the eternality of Jesus' priesthood. Which leads into the verses at the beginning of this text today. Again, if we were to open up the Old Testament to Numbers, and you don't have to do it. I'm just going to tell you a story from Numbers 20. And this is where this would come from. So the original audience, the hearers, the, the, the Hebrew Christians who are hearing this from the author, this is where, they, this is where their mind would go. They would go to he, uh, Old Testament, Numbers 20. We witnessed this very thing happening that we read in verse 23, that the former priests were many in number. Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. And we see it happening in, in Numbers chapter 20. Moses, Aaron, and Aaron's son, Eleazar, go up to the mountain Moses strips the garments off Aaron, places the garments on Eleazar, and on that mountain, Aaron dies. And Moses and Eleazar come down. And when Eleazar dies, his son Phineas takes over the priesthood. Death is limiting. That's why Jesus' permanence is better. So in verse 24... In contrast to this, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because why? He continues forever. And what did we learn about him continuing forever? Well, last week we said he has an indestructible life. It's the resurrection, right? So if it's permanent, if it's forever, if his priesthood is eternal, there is no need to transfer it to another priest. There is no next priest. Jesus Christ not only was raised from the dead, but he ascended visibly and bodily to heaven. And he now rules at the right hand of God. He rules the world by his word and his spirit for the sake of his people. And because of the permanency of his priesthood, his priesthood is superior to anything in the Old Testament. So again, imagine the audience hearing what the author is speaking to them. There's only one priest now? There's only one priest to, to know. They never knew that. They never experienced that. They didn't know 
what the next priest was going to be like compared to the, the previous priest. But now they can know forever. So in Jesus' exaltation above all, superior to all is so important to our hope, to our assurance in our faith. Our assurance is not grounded subjectively in our faith. Our faith is but the instrument by which we receive assurance as we receive salvation. Our assurance, our hope, is grounded objectively in who? Jesus. And in what he has done, his work. It's grounded objectively in the work of Jesus Christ. Our security then is based on the permanency of Jesus' priesthood. Jesus was stripped of his garments and placed on the scourging post. And he died on the cross. The difference between Jesus and Aaron is Jesus rose and that grave is empty. And when Jesus rose, he put on the robe of a king. The garment he put on was that of a king, and not just any king, the king. And when you think about that, just think about why this is so important. The the problem with sin doesn't end at the beginning of the Christian life. Amen? Amen? We wish it would. We rejoice when we finally realize we're sinners. We finally realize that we need God's grace. And we trust in Jesus for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel, presented to us in the gospel. And we feel the bondage of sin and the guilt of sin removed as we feel this enormous pleasure of forgiveness and acceptance with God. Then we never have to worry about sin again, right? Not right. Right. We fight against sin every day until we are home. That's the sanctification process. That's what God is doing in our lives. And so we need a priest who will be around for the process. I'm going to die and go home. And I look forward to that day. And, be, and until that day, I'm going to work in the gospel and the grace of God to share with everybody I can on my long walk home. This is where we're going. It's a place of eternal hope and security, not because it's a place called heaven, but because of Jesus. So we need a priest, though, because, again, I'm not going to be here. Our pastors, our staff, we're not going to be here forever. We need a priest that will be around for the process. So when you bear your soul to Jesus, he is a priest who will always know. He is one who will always understand what you've gone through, and he will always be there for you more so, so much more than me. Because he's a permanent priest. He is a priest that we need. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't you understand that your security, your assurance, your hope is absolutely dependent upon having what? A permanent priest, which we have in Jesus. Here's the second aspect. Perfection. Perfection, 26 through 28, talks about perfection. Now let's remember again how, how it worked. Old Testament priests, before they could offer the sacrifices for the people... They had to offer sacrifices for themselves. Why? Because they were sinners. They were appointed by God. They represented God. But they were to offer the sacrifice for the people. But before they could do that, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves because they were sinners. Jesus did not because he was perfect. 
Verse 26 says he was holy and innocent, without stain. Not only that, how often did the priest have to offer sacrifices? It wasn't just yearly, daily. Thousands upon thousands of sacrifices all the way into Jesus' time. Daily offered. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot cleanse. And yet what is said about Jesus' sacrifice? Verse 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those people since he did this once. And for who? All. When he offered up himself. That last, that last part of that verse, those four words, he offered up himself, the power within that phrase. Charles Spurgeon, in teaching and looking at this part of Hebrews, he says, I don't even feel worthy of even speaking those words or even teaching on those words. Offered up himself, the power that's given there. He gave himself willingly. It was his decision it wasn't child abuse as culture sometimes tries to present in the case of Jesus and the Father. It was Jesus' decision. We know by the, by the story of the crucifixion that he willingly gave up his spirit, right? And we'll, again, we'll look at that as we get into communion today. It was his decision for his love for you and for me and for, for the Father to be glorified in the fulfillment of the mission in which he came to do. Jesus, in one sacrifice, forgave every sin of everyone who draws to God through him once and for all. So your security rests not only on Jesus being a permanent priest, but also on Jesus being a perfect person. Because he was the only one. We might say it this way, because Jesus was perfectly suited, he is perpetually seated, and we should be peacefully settled. Verse 28 says, the Son has been made perfect forever. The author is telling us in no uncertain terms that what we need is Jesus. Jesus Christ in his capacity as our high priest is the perfect answer to whatever questions you and I may ask. Whatever is required for you and I to experience maximum satisfaction and joy in life now and hereafter, Jesus acting on our behalf as the high priest supplies it. Jesus as the high priest and Jesus only will do for us what we need most but not necessarily what we want most. Jesus alone is suited, as the text says, for the task of helping us enter into the deepest and most lasting enjoyment of the ultimate reason for which God has created and redeemed us. No one, nothing else, nothing. So pause for a moment. Think deeply and honestly on this question, God is saying to you and me in this passage, and there is only one thing that is fitting and suitable and appropriate to the needs of our souls, Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a few questions. Do you need set free from the guilt and shame of rebellious life? Do you need set free from the guilt and shame of a rebellious life? Do you need a sacrifice to be offered on your behalf to bridge the gap between you and God? Do you need a hope for the future that will never disappoint? 
The sort of hope that will energize you in the present moment and sustain you in the difficult days that may lie ahead. Do you need a friend who will never cease to pray for you? Do you need a friend who will never berate you? Do you need a friend who will never betray you or ridicule you? Do you need a friend who will never make fun of you or let you down? Do you need to know you are genuinely and eternally loved? You are genuinely and eternally loved. Even when everyone else abandons you. No one can meet those needs but Jesus. No one can meet the genuine needs of your heart, your mind, your body, and your emotions except for Jesus Christ as our faithful and merciful high priest. One writer wrote this about this particular section of Hebrews. He says, no matter how seemingly helpful the many psychological formulas that help us cope with life may be, or how transforming the practical counsel you might find in today's world to help with our problems may be, everything is either partial or periodic, meaning they only go so far and for so long before they lose their capacity to make a difference. Every person's strategy promise that comes our way will eventually fail us. If it's a friend, the day will come when they won't show up when you need them most. If it's a formula, the day will come when it proves inadequate to meet our need or answer our question or soothe our conscience or get us over the hurdle of some obstacle in life. Everything in life ultimately fails. Everyone in life ultimately falters. I think for many, we know this to be true. And if I were to stop right there, this would be incredibly depressing and discouraging. You'd be like, why did I go to church today? I don't feel better. I feel worse. If there was nothing else to offer, that's how it would be. Oh, but there's so much more to offer. Let me close with these two words, a better hope for us. Allow me to circle back to verse 25. And in verse 25, this is what we read. You can look at it with me. Consequently... He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he, has, since he always lives to make intercession for them. These two words are life-saving, hope-giving, joy-awakening, heart-thrilling, breathtaking in their force and implication. And the two words are uttermost and always. The word uttermost means to the utmost degree. You probably knew that. <laughs> It means that nothing in the salvation Christ provides is lacking in any way. It means that there is nothing defective in what Christ has done or in the reconciliation with God that he has obtained for us. It means that his salvation is complete and whole. We struggle to believe that, right? We struggle to believe that because we think surely somewhere, somewhere there must be someone who is simply too sinful to be saved. And maybe that someone is me. You ever felt that way? The quality and extent and frequency and selfishness and repetitive occurrence of our sins in life have to be greater, so we think, than the quality and capacity of Christ's work, his person and work to overcome. After all, there have to be limits to what even Jesus can do, right? You ever felt that way? There has to be a point beyond which he cannot and will not go. 
I mean, no one is that patient or kind or pure or loving. No one is that good or gracious or long-suffering. You ever felt that way? Most of us at some time or another, we reach a point of complete frustration with ourselves. I feel like I do that more often than I should. We're fed up with our failures. We're convinced that God is too. We envision God as looking up as we come running to him for the thousandth time, saying, God looking at us saying, oh no, not you again. Enough already. I've had it up to here with your foolishness and sin and how you always expect me to be there with open arms to start over again. And we believe that he'll just look at us and say that ends today. It simply cannot go on. And it makes sense to us that he would react that way. As far as our experience is concerned, we've learned that everything has a limit. A point beyond which not even God can go is how we, is how we see it. But verse 25 says something else. It shows us that our thinking like that, those moments that we find ourselves in, those thoughts are bad. They're skewed. They're wrong, really. The point we learn in this verse is that we have sold God short. We have terribly misjudged what he's like and have underestimated what he has done and will continue to do. That's the point of the word uttermost. Listen to this. The word is saying that there are no links to which God and Christ won't go to save you. The word is saying that there are no sins you've committed, are committing, or will in the future commit that are beyond the power of Christ's atoning death to forgive. The word is saying that Jesus Christ has accomplished for you what, may, what, what no one else ever has, can, or will. He has left nothing undone. He has not failed to make a provision for every need. So when you begin to think that God missed a step, I remind you that he saves to the uttermost. When you begin to wonder if there are limits to his love, I remind you that he saves to the uttermost. When you struggle to believe that an infinitely holy and righteous God would ever allow someone as awful and sinful and wretched as me and you into his presence, I remind you that he saves to the uttermost. And when you simply throw up your hands in frustration and confusion, declaring that nothing this good could possibly be true, I remind you that he saves to the uttermost. Praise God. And what he saves, he saves utterly and exhaustively and comprehensively. He doesn't save your soul and leave your body to decay. He doesn't save your spirit but leave your mind to deteriorate. One day, your salvation our salvation will be consummated when we are raised in glory and made to conform not only in mind, spirit, and heart, but in body also to the glorious resurrection body of Jesus himself. Amen. The Apostle Paul had this in view when he wrote the words to the Philippian church. To the Christians in Philippi, he says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That is simply another way of saying God saves to the uttermost. But it gets better. Can it get better? It gets better. And we wonder how anything could possibly get better and anything more possibly could be said. And then we get to our second word, always. Always. 
Jesus Christ not only saves to the uttermost, but he also lives to make intercession for us always. It speaks of duration and extension in time. It means never-ending, never-ceasing. It points to something that is incessant, eternal, everlasting. You ever seen the phrase, you can rest tonight because God is awake? That's true. Verse 25. We have a hard time thinking to the end of the week. Guilty. We have a hard time thinking to the end of the month or much less to the end of the year. We find it difficult to envision anything extending beyond our own lifetime. We live by the clock and the calendar. Everything is measured in terms of seconds and minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years. It's hard to get our minds around something that cannot be contained or limited by time. It may actually be the case that we struggle more to understand the implications of this word always than we do the implications of the word uttermost. The reason is that even if something given to us is perfect, that doesn't necessarily mean it will last forever. Nothing lasts forever. Right? Wrong. This lasts forever. So there is something that lasts forever. One thing that lasts is the heavenly intercession on our behalf of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. That's a better hope. And the reason he can do it forever is what we celebrate in communion. So go ahead and grab your communion cup. If you want to, you can go ahead and peel that top layer back and grab that little white wafer. The wafer that you hold in your hand represents the body. Jesus Christ being broken for us. The body, Jesus Christ being given over for us. Jesus' great love for us. He held nothing back. He is our better hope. He is our greater hope than anything and anyone. And what we look at as we pause to remember as we are commanded in Scripture as Christians, disciples of Jesus Christ to do, we look at the cross and we see the willingness, again, the willingness, the desire to give His life for all, for all of us. And this wafer is to symbolize for us in giving it all. You notice it's a complete wafer. You notice it's not just a piece, but it's whole, unless you didn't open your package right. It's whole, because Jesus gave everything. And as I look around the room, and as I think about those joining us, there's not a person I can lock eyes with in this room that Jesus' body wasn't given over for. So if you feel isolated or lonely, you feel like no one sees you, you feel like you're by yourself, you feel like there's no one who could love you, no one who could care for you, no one who could cherish or adore you, you don't have to feel like that. Jesus does. Jesus loves you. He knows where you are. And on the cross, he sees you. 
and he kept himself on the cross out of love and grace so that you and I may experience it. This is not some ritual we do as Christians. This is not just some routine we are to do as Christians. This is to be emotional. It is to be moving. It is to be stirring. It is to ruin us of pride and selfishness. And it is to draw us back to the one who really loves. And so when we take this wafer, we know that his love was real and genuine because he gave it all. take this together. If you open up the bottom half, the juice representing the purest blood the world has ever known as a symbol of the lamb who shed his blood for us who became a lion and again he held nothing back from the time that they arrested him in the garden to the time that they put a bag over his head and struck him as the blood began to flow From the time that they stripped him of his clothes and put him him on a scourging post and began to scourge him with a cat of nine tails. From the time that they put a crown of thorns on his head and the blood just streamed down his face. From the time that they nailed through his wrist and his feet as they placed him on that cross at Calvary. From the time that they lifted him up on high. From the time that he just bled as he looked around. In that moment, when he could have truly called on legions of angels, when he truly had the power to stop all of it, he didn't. Why? Because he loves us. To the glory of the Father and to the grace and love of us, Jesus completed the work. There is no work left to do. There is no work for us. Jesus did it because only he could. And that work is now for us, given us a better hope. A permanent priest who is perfect, who will never leave us, forsake us, who will always be with us. And as we look at this juice representing his blood, we're reminded of that day. And we are to be moved and stirred, transformed again strengthened to carry on until we're home. Church, remember this. Jesus isn't bleeding anymore. He's not on a cross. He's not in a grave. He has ascended. And he sits at the Father's right hand, interceding even as you and I pause to remember and do what he's commanded us to do. He's watching. His spirit is present. And that should comfort us to the deepest part of who we are. Let's take this together. Father, we are so overwhelmed and humbled 
by the work, finished work of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that every single person here online knows that that finished work was for them. They are not left out, but they are invited in to know Jesus, to believe and repent. Only Jesus and him alone, our high priest forever, brings us rest, comfort, and strength forever and ever until we're home. God, may you be glorified in our lives every day as we live to serve and to share the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. We pray this in his name.